And welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe, your destination at the intersection of faith and reason. I'm Doug Keck here, operating the front gate, coming to you from our studios here in the mothership, as Father would call it, where Mother Angelica began it all back in 1981. Uh, and we're here on Mother Angelica Way, reminding you your questions are central to the program. Send them to us at spitzersuniverse at ewtn.com. Check out all of Father Spitzer's websites, the Magic Center one, Credible Catholic, and Purposeful Universe, all listed on your screen throughout the show, so you can uh, be reinforced on that. And don't forget that Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on the EWTN On Demand page, along with so many other programs, along with our EWTN YouTube channel, if you don't get to our On Demand page. And we have a new program recently added, a great program on Father James E. Coyle, The Life and Legacy that program uh, is on our on-demand page, and, and Jim uh, Pinto is very essential and important in that whole story of uh, Father Coyle, who basically was killed for doing the right thing years ago here in Birmingham, Alabama. And of course, Mother and the Sisters took a couple of shots as well there. Some people took some shots at the house early on. But that's another story. Check out Raymond's book. That Satan's preparing for effective temptations is what we're talking about. That's in Father's book, Christ vs. Satan in Our Daily Lives, naturally available through our religious catalog, as are all great Catholic books and items. And the book of the month, speaking of another one, our great friend, Dr. Ray Garende, Mr. Radio, taught by 10, a psychologist. Father learns from his 10 children, and he's still learning, trust me. And of course, with that said, we'll turn to Father Spitzer, who'll lead us in prayer. Great to see you, Father. How are you? Good to see you too, Doug. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing especially of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon Doug, myself, our whole audience this day, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Right. It's great to see you. In about a week and a half or so, I'll get to spend some time with you in person as you uh, show up at our radio conference for our radio affiliates, and then uh, on the Saturday, yeah. October 1st for our family celebration, so that's exciting, along with a lot of other uh, stalwarts of EW10, including the one and only Father Mitch. So we'll have the, yeah. the steel cage match <laughs> between the two of you Jesuits there. Uh, that's right. So people can look forward to that. Uh, also here, let's a uh, couple of interesting articles. Uh, Lila Rose, who did a great job uh, on Dr. Phil's show recently, standing up uh, yeah. to the attacks and actually telling the truth, uh, which is, of course, why she was attacked. Uh, the story is uh, from her group, Live Action. Planned Parenthood's annual report shows record taxpayer funding and abortions. So last year, Planned Parenthood killed 383,460 innocent children. And that's about 1,051 babies a day, an increase of 8% for them. And taxpayers are contributing an all-time high, just so all the people watching understand, $633.4 million to Planned Parenthood, and over $15 million increase from the previous year. And while they're doing that, their clients have decreased, actually, by almost a quarter of a million, but their abortions have increased uh, by a total of 30,000 or so. So uh, they're still fast at work, and they're getting our money to do it. 
Wow, all I can say is uh, uh, it's flabbergasting. In light of the science, I just don't get it. As I said uh, last week, the, um, the science clearly dictates that there is a real, unique human being present from the moment of fertilization. The DNA sequencing techniques, the studies of the uniqueness of the human zygote show this indisputably. And that's why in that last international study of, uh, of 5,600 bi uh, biologists, professional biologists, 96% of them almost unanimously affirmed that life begins at fertilization or conception. And that fact alone if that doesn't move anybody to see that what is going on there is the killing of innocent human life, which, which human life has inalienable rights to life and liberty, I just don't get it. This is so wrong. This is such a fundamental injustice. No, you know, absolutely no, I mean, the Supreme Court knew uh, and that's why in the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court knew it could not continue to right. sanction the killing of these innocent human lives any more than the uh, Supreme Court could sanction the wholesale slavery of, uh, of the people of color in the Dred Scott versus Sanford decision. It had to be reversed. Mm -hmm. and, and this is just the remedy of an injustice. And yet the taxpayer funding grinds on. Yet the institution, you know, it's almost like, uh, you know, they're, they're saying that slavery really never did, uh, you know, uh, uh, exist. We always had the right to enslave people. It should have gone right on as usual. That's what we're saying right now, because the science doesn't leave us any more room to excuse our actions. It now dictates that we're really dealing with a, a, a human being, a self-developing, unique human being that everyone in the professional biological business internationally, practically speaking, is affirming is a new unique human life, mm -hmm. which of course, if it's a human being, it has to have uh, inalienable rights to life and liberty. And there, we need to protect those citizens. So again, I, I just, I'm, I'm shocked uh, that this continues. I'm shocked that we right. ignore the science. I'm shocked that we ignore the issue, but I am so thankful that our Supreme Court did not ignore the science, did not ignore the issue, knew that abortion was never a constitutional right, and knew that in light of the science, we have a duty to prevent it. And they turned it back to the states so that democratic processes could at least begin the, uh, the, the, the process right. of determining uh, you know, what's going to happen in the future for these innocent human lives. All right. I can tell you is it just doesn't make any sense to me how this uh, Planned Parenthood uh, action can continue as uh, usual. Right, absolutely demonic. Also, uh, The Catholic Thing, a wonderful uh, blog and article, uh, uh, John Gondoleski uh, put something out. I thought it was interesting and it kind of ties a little bit into that. It says, like the no-fault divorce movement, it says, pro-abortionists aim to exclude any consideration of cause or reason for their choice. We see that. These are moral positions disguised under seemingly neutral legal terminology. 
What they really mean is that no marriage should ever be immune from dissolution, no pregnancy from termination. This is a wholly in keeping with a morally relativistic viewpoint, and this is really important, that refuses to examine the causes, but only wants to deal with the consequences. Preteens should not be stopped from having sex, they should be issued condoms. If they get pregnant, they obviously should have abortions. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it is utilitarianism gone crazy in a way. Uh, it is consequentialistic, no doubt mm -hmm. about that. Uh, and um, uh, all I can say is we do have to examine the causes. We do have to examine the sciences, science, and, and we are responsible for so doing. And if we don't do that, if we don't try to ascertain the, the moral quality of our actions, and clearly the science now says that abortion is the killing of an innocent human being, if that is the case, then I... I strongly suspect that uh, we will be held accountable as a nation right. for it because we do know better. Mm -hmm. We do have uh, published studies that show this very clearly, and that's why, uh, you know, I, I, like I said, I'm shocked that it just mm -hmm. continues business as usual, and the rhetoric rolls on uh, to continue to justify it. Uh, there, you know, we, we're just going to have to work so hard uh, to get in, you know, pro-life candidates and pro-life initiatives, and we, we just really have to get out there, and we can't be guilty bystanders. We can't just stay by the wayside anymore. We got to get involved. We got to get engaged to protect and defend human life, which, as I said, uh, science uh, clearly indicates is present. Uh, from the moment of conception. Right, because an individual now in their voting uh, can have a direct impact on this, which yes. may have been less yes. of, a, 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 of a likelihood prior to the Dobbs decision. But that's been taken Absolutely. away. That excuse has been taken away. Here's another thing having to do with transgenderism. I thought this was, it came from the, the Ruth Institute, Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse's group. They talk about, uh -huh. uh, in a recent article in a feminist magazine called Emma, this person uh, says, there are people who want to change their gender, but they can't do it. Dr. Chris Christiane Nuzlin Volhard is a 1995 Nobel Prize winner in physiology and medicine, and she won it for early embryonic development. And she told the, the magazine, the idea that people can change their gender is nonsense. It's wishful thinking. People retain their gender for life. And then Rohrbeck Musk puts out, you know, we get called bi bigots for saying the same exact thing that this Nobel laureate just pointed out. And, uh, and uh, Nuzlan Walhard also warned of the dangers of the so-called gender transitioning with drugs and surgery. She said the body cannot handle it in the long run. Every hormone you take has side effects. Taking hormones is inherently dangerous. And Morse responded increasingly, Detransitioners, and you've talked about this, are coming forward to tell their stories and warn of the physical and psychological dangers of what's called gender transition. Yes, you know, I, I've, I've talked about the studies, and they are numerous. Right. Uh, there are U.S. studies, there are Swedish studies, there are Netherlands studies that really do show 
that it, because the anxieties that provoke the cross-gender confusion in the first place, it's not, there's nothing biological about it, right? There's nothing genetic about it. Uh, the, the problem uh, from the very beginning uh, has to do with, uh, you know, anxieties that are in the household. It has to do uh, with sexual and physical abuse of, of children. It has to do with latent homosexual desires that are getting interpreted in the wrong way. And you put all of these anxieties together, and there's a whole load of them, and a pre-adolescent child thinks, oh, the way to deal with these anxieties, I need a sex change, and mom will like me better uh, when I'm a girl. And so, it basically, uh, uh, I can get rid of her anxiety. I can also like myself better because I, I have a, a you know, gravitational liking for men, so forth and so on. And, uh, of course, they make, they, they say that the only way out is, is the sexual reassignment surgery. However, once they get the sexual reassignment surgery, uh, yes, they will get relief for the first two to three years. Mm -hmm. But then after that, there's going to be a gradual uh, increase again in the anxiety. So the anxiety level will build up and will build up uh, over the course of those years. And if these uh, Swedish and U.S. studies are correct, then we should expect that uh, about five years after the surgery, there's going to be buyer's re remorse. That's the detransitioners there. In other words, people start saying, hey, wait a minute. It's, uh, you know, I still have the anxiety. I, I, uh, you know, the, the, the sexual reassignment surgery didn't work. I've done myself permanent damage. Uh, now the buyer's remorse sets in. Mm -hmm. And then you compound all of that with the recurrence of the anxiety. And suddenly, 10 years after the surgery, you get a 19 times to 20 times increase in the suicide rates. Right. And one, I mean, that's enormous, 1,900%, 2,000% increase in the suicide rates. Wow. I mean, all I can tell you is this is, uh, uh, you know, it's over the top. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and we know this already. We know what the psychological uh, influence is going to be. Yet the medical establishment is the same thing I was just talking about with respect to abortion. I mean, the, the, the rhetoric rolls on. And, the, you know, just let's just write a superscript over this entire thing. And we're going to ignore the suicide problem. We're going to ignore the anxiety problem. We're going to ignore the detransitioning problem. And we're just going to say the solution to your problem is get that sex reassignment surgery. They don't account for any of the side effects of the hormones. They don't account for any of the side effects of the surgery itself. They don't account for the fact that the anxiety levels has never been treated properly because they thought that the sexual reassignment surgery would do it and it doesn't do it and then you combine it in with the buyer's remorse and you've got a population 20% of which is not it's committing suicide practically that's right. ridiculous so I mean wh what are we talking about here this has got to stop it's medically unethical it should stop but th there it is you know no. it's not that we're not loving people who have crushed I mean of course the whole idea of treating the anxiety levels of people with cross-gender confusion. This is a matter of sensitivity. It's a matter of compassion. We need to, to, to help them, but sexual reassignment surgery is not the way to do that. Right. All you do is lead them down the path to, you know, huge increase, yeah, well, you know, in, in suicides. Right. Well, people do think medical has come a long way. You know, it used to bleed people at different times, get rid of the bad humors until yeah. they realized that wasn't a good idea. They didn't continue yeah. doing it because they were embarrassed to tell people, oh, we made a mistake. Uh, yeah. one, one other oh, story yeah. here I thought was interesting. I don't, 
A shout out to Franciscan University of Steubenville for starting something called a scholarship that confronts uh, the smartphone addiction called Unplugged Scholarship. I don't know whether it's good that they, I mean, it's great they're doing it. It's kind of sad that it needs to get done. Uh, Franciscan University launched uh, a pilot program called Unplugged Scholarship, which awards financial assistance students who give up using smartphone for the duration of their undergraduate studies. Well, um, I, I guess, uh, you know, if you're asking me, I'd say, uh, fine. Right. You know, I sure didn't need one during my undergraduate studies. I can't even imagine what a distraction it would have been. But, uh, I, you know, the, I also understand that uh, so long as uh, the, these students have some access uh, to, you know, the research right, uh, dimensions of the, of the World Wide Web, uh, that would be uh, uh, some, you know, uh, right. importance uh, has to be assigned to that. So, uh, but, as, you know, do you need a smartphone? Oh, my gosh, you know. I mean, they're buried. You know, I was just uh, over in Seattle, and I was uh, at, a, at a restaurant, and I was just looking, you know, at the table next door, and there were four people sitting at the table next door, mm. and every single one of them was not talking to each other. They were buried in their smartphones at the table having lunch. Right. Can you believe this? Oh, absolutely. Uh, 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 yeah. That's not unusual. Anyway. That's not yeah. unusual at all. Uh, so. yeah. And we wonder why things are the way they are. Let's get to some questions, because yeah. last week uh, we didn't get as, to as many as we would have liked, so we're going to heavy up on the questions. Dear Father Spitzer, okay. in Matthew 27, 52, the Bible says tombs were opened and there was a general resurrection of multiple dead people. Did this actually happen, and if so, where did they go? Raymond. Well, Wayne, um, you know, there is uh, some kind of a tradition, apparently, uh, that did, uh, an early tradition uh, that was in the Aramaic community that did uh, believe that something like that occurred, that there were, uh, you know, there was uh, some release of the, uh, uh, of people, and maybe they did appear, in fact, uh, to other people. Uh, now, um, you know, uh, there are other exegetes, of course, who think that this is just, um, you know, a symbolism of the parousia has begun, the time of the final age has begun, and so, of course, uh, people are leaving their tombs. There's another group of exegetes that think it is a sim uh, symbolism uh, for the fact that um, Jesus has liberated those who were in the domain of Sheol, the domain of the dead, the domain, the shadow world of the dead. And so uh, um, really there is not an official church uh, interpretation that says you have to believe one of them versus another. Mm -hmm. I mean, the more literal interpretation is not out of the question right. that you really could have had um, some people who did appear. I mean, deathbed visions and so forth, these things happen. I mean, people uh, do appear, uh, you know, to, to people uh, after their death and sometimes long periods after their death. So could this have happened? Absolutely it could have happened. Uh, but, you know, uh, uh, the church does not require uh, that you believe that uh, particular interpretation. Uh, but I think it's certainly within the realm of possibility. Do you think sometimes when people think of this, they think they think people will like revive, say, though, you know, they got out of the tombs, they were walking around town, and so they're trying to figure out 
well, where, where did they end up going rather than understanding it as a quote? Oh, no, no. I think action. this is definitely on the, on the level of like uh, a deathbed vision of a person who, right. you know, very, you know, might have died a couple of years ago and right. all of a sudden they show up and they tell you, hey, I'm okay and, uh, you know, uh, things are going to be fine. And, and uh, the saints, by the way, means holy ones, mm. right? Uh, so the hagioi. And so uh, it basically would, would be, you know, that, that these are people who have been redeemed by Jesus, people who were thought to be good in their life and had been in the domain of the shadow world of the dead until uh, the Messiah uh, came. And in this case, the Son of God liberated them. So, um, yeah, it certainly uh, could have absolutely happened that way. But they wouldn't be, you know, standing around uh, right. looking for a place to go right. or to live. They're, they're going straight up to heaven after they apparently right. appear to some people. And so I think that's a perfectly so this plausible... Would be, right, different understanding than, like, in the case of, like, Lazarus, right? Oh, yeah. That, uh, Lazarus is a physical... Um, uh, uh, resurrection. In other words, we don't really call it a, a resurrection. It's almost right. like a, a physical restoration of life. Right. Um, no, the, what we're talking about here uh, would be a person who is on their way uh, to heaven okay. uh, imminently, and they are, as it were, uh, appearing to various people uh, to manifest the fact right. that they have, are moving from the domain of the dead into the domain of heaven. Okay, very good. Next up. Through the power of Christ. Right, of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Dear Father Spitzer, in one of your books, you mentioned a study concerning religious affiliation and suicide attempts among those with depression, and we talk about it on the show as well. The suicide rates were lower in those religiously affiliated. Is there any research showing that religious people have lower rates of depression to begin with compared to non-religious people? What about the feelings of anxiety, hopelessness, and the substance abuse between religious and non-religious oh. people? Yeah, I mean, this is just a study that compared uh, religious affiliation to non-religious uh, affiliation. And I don't think uh, that, um, uh, I think they did try to eliminate, uh, you know, uh, like a clinical depression that was, um, you know, not associated with religion whatsoever, right? Uh, they did try to show... Uh, to, to eliminate people who would have been in that uh, obvious category. But um, no, I, I, you know, I, I know this was put together by um, uh, Kanita Dervik and, and uh, I think it was about 14 other authors uh, published in the American Psychiatric Association's journal there. Um, but uh, I don't um, uh, know if they actually tried to uh, show the percentage uh, you know, that have, um, you know, independent of religious affiliation um, and compare it uh, with, you know, of depression um, with uh, others. But one thing you can do is you could eliminate those who had clinical depression beforehand. And this is a fair question. It's a good question. Uh, you can eliminate um, those who have had obvious clinical depression beforehand and just don't make them part of the study. Uh, and, of course, I think they tried to do that. They also tried to make sure that there was equity in the groups uh, economically, uh, uh, you know, educationally. So if you have, you know, one-third of the study had X amount of education, then one-third of the non-religiously affiliated had X amount of education, 
and so forth and so on, so you could actually uh, do an equitable study, right. uh, you know, eliminating other factors that might be involved in depression. Uh, religion, by the way, is not the sole, uh, you know, alleviator of depression. Uh, also, having friends and good family life right. is important, and also some people have physical predispositions toward depression, completely independent of whether they're religiously affiliated or not. Now, according to the studies of Dr. Koenig, um, Harold Koenig, um, if people do have a disposition toward depression or anxiety, uh, religion does help them. Right. Uh, and Dr. Harold Koenig, he's the fellow at Duke University who has done a series of studies on how religion helps those with depression, um, you know, to add that to, for example, therapy, right. so you take therapy plus religion, that leads to the best coping skill for those who have had uh, clinical depression, um, you know, after right. the fact. Uh, similarly, those who actually pray and have a spiritual life do have much quicker recovery times than those uh, who do not. Uh, have any religion or prayer and he's got that uh, published in a series of Duke studies I think they're free online mm -hmm. so if you look up this guy uh, Harold Koenig it's a K-O-E-N-I-G uh, like King in German if okay. you look that up uh, um, then you will see a series of studies both on the psychological coping right. mechanisms of religion as well as the physical healing uh, dimensions of spiritual life and religion. Okay, next up, uh, dear Father Spitzer, is there a difference between apostasy and heresy? I've always thought they were synonyms. George. Oh, no, uh, actually, uh, you know, heresy, of course, means that you are holding a doctrine uh, which is uh, a heterodox, right? You're holding a doctrine that is contrary to the doctrine of the Christian church. So if you say, oh, there's no evil spirit, or you say there's no heaven or hell, well, typically that would be heretical mm -hmm. uh, to, to hold that if you were uh, claiming to be a Catholic or a Christian. Now, on the other hand, um, apostasy would really mean that you are making a public uh, you know, dissent from the church, you are going to leave the church, uh, or you uh, are leaving the church and giving public witness to leaving the church, even under persecution, mm -hmm. right? That'd still be apostasy. So even if you're getting persecuted and go, I don't want to be persecuted, uh, but you publicly leave uh, the church and publicly deny Christ, right? That would be an apostasy. Okay, very good. Got about three minutes or so to the break. Uh, dear okay. Father Spitzer, thank you so much for your programs and for taking questions. Good. As the world gets crazier, could you please shed some light as to what the church's teaching is on the mark of the beast? With the recent moves of possibly being forced into digital currency, does this seem to be it? Do you personally think that the mark of the beast has happened or is it yet to come? If it is still to come, do you think we will know it when we see it? Will it be clearly against God, Lisa? Well, the only thing, I mean, of course, this comes from the book of Revelations. And, um, you know, uh, uh, first of all, uh, you know, the mark of the beast, uh, it's uh, the, the, the book of Revelation is filled with apocalyptic metaphorical language. 
And so you have to be very careful about any kind of a literal interpretation of the book of Revelations. But let's suppose this is more than a metaphor, and it might be more than a metaphor. Um, then what would the mark of the beast be? Uh, you say, well, it's 666 or something. You know, well, um, okay, um, you know, what would that be manifest as? Uh, it's very, very difficult. First of all, the church doesn't interpret what the mark of the beast would be at right. all because the church really has as much idea as I do of what the mark of the beast uh, is going to be or should be or how the metaphor was intended by the, the biblical author. So that's the first thing uh, that's, that's important. But the second thing that's important is I think we waste a whole lot of time, honestly, trying to figure these things out, which I just don't think we can. We have no critical apparatus to figure out, you know, what that would mean, how it might be applied. And so, you know, when we're trying to do too much, you know, prediction of the mark of the beast or other kinds of predictions about the end time uh, and so forth and so on. I think if we get involved in that, we distract ourselves from what really matters. And what really matters is right now uh, trying to not only hold on to our faith, but to evangelize the culture again, to bring back the old uh, eight deadly sins, to try and bring back uh, Christian morality, which is so important and good for not only uh, spiritual health, but emotional health and relational health and marital health. So the, the idea of uh, you know, is let's concentrate on what's important. When the mark of the beast happens, in other words, when this era comes in which the evil spirit is going to make his final play, and that's, I think, what it refers to is when the evil spirit thinks he's got the culture and the world all wrapped up in the right direction, uh, enough to make a final play, um, you know, what would it be against God? Absolutely. The evil spirit is always against God. And, of course, the final play is always going to be an attempt to create rebellion on a massive scale against God throughout the world. That is his objective before the end time is to begin. So that much we can know. That much is a part of our own doctrine. But how it would be manifest, how would we know what the mark consists in, so difficult to tell. Uh, so I, I think it's just best to lay off of all those predictions. Lay, you know, even Jesus said, the Son of Man right. does not know when the final coming is going to be. He's left that for his, you know, that's for the Father alone to know. So all these things, um, you know, are um, uh, there. They're interesting, uh, but we do know there is going to be an attempt. That, uh, the, uh, the evil spirit is going to try and create a general rebellion right. against God in the world. But there's going to be a whole lot of people that are going to hold out and that are going to fight them. And the ones that are rebelling ultimately toward the end of the world, uh, they're going to wind up having uh, a, a dark future. Right. And the ones that are fighting against him, even at the cost of their lives, will have a much brighter future right. with Jesus. Right, and we have an end time break right now here. <laughs> and uh, we'll be back with much more with Father Spitzer and your questions as Father Spitzer's universe continues. Stay with us.
And thank you so much for staying with us for part two of Father Spitzer Universe. Answer your questions and talking about his book, Christ versus Satan in our daily lives. One thing I wanted to pick up, and we've talked about it before, but so many of us are used mm -hmm. to hearing the seven deadly sins. And you and your books, and you've mentioned before the eight deadly sins. How do, you, how do mm -hmm. we go from seven to eight in your mind? Well, uh, you know, prior to the time of Gregory the Great, uh, there were uh, several people, uh, several church fathers and, and theologians who actually separated vanity out from pride. Uh, you know, now um, uh, it so happens that Gregory, who had an enormous uh, influence on the Latin church, uh, thought that the two uh, belonged together. Uh, but I went with the pre-Gregory um, uh, uh, view of it, uh, you know, because I really think vanity is about look at me, mm -hmm. admire me. Whereas I think pride is about you should, I, I am superior to you. Mm -hmm. I should rule you. And so I should have power over you and you should acknowledge my power over you. And so <clears throat> they're different. They're, they're very different. <clears throat> One person is looking for a kind of a dominance <clears throat> and an acknowledgement of being superior and therefore having the right to dominate, whereas that's the pride. Whereas the other, the vain person just says, I just want you to admire me. Uh, you know, I really want you to love me, as, as I think it was Sally Fields or somebody said. Well, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. The they really, when she got the Oscar, right? Yeah. yeah you right. like me, you really right. like me, right? They right. really, really like me. You know, I mean, it's almost like, okay, uh, the vanity thing, you know, is, is uh, much more about that. And, of course, uh, you know, that can lead to... Uh, all kinds of terrible things, mm -hmm. terrible insults, terrible class, uh, you know, distinctions and all kinds of things like that. However, uh, uh, pride, I think, is much more uh, insidious mm -hmm. because it really is saying, I'm so superior to you, I have the right to rule you and you ought to acknowledge it and like it because you're just, you know, a little squirmy, uh, pretty much inferior that, uh, that needs to acknowledge not only my superiority, but my veritable divinity. And right. of course, uh, the moment you get into that mode, you know, it, it becomes really, uh, I'm not saying, you know, everybody winds up being a Hitler uh, who's like this, but boy, I'll tell you, Pride is really insidious, and uh, it really has a lot of power, uh, you know, implications and a lot of domination implications that vanity really doesn't. So I separated okay. them out. Uh, Gregory thought it was preferable to keep them together, uh, you know, and I think, of course, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine, they fall, uh, or St. Uh, Thomas Aquinas followed Gregory uh, in, um, in the seven deadly sins. Well, they like and the so number the Western seven churches, anyway, probably. Yeah. I mean, seven's yeah. a nice biblical number, so. Yeah. It works there, too. Right? Yeah. Okay. So one last question okay. before we get to the book. Dear Father Spitzer, I like the story you recently told about the no-elbow people. They all sat around a table yeah. found they could not feed themselves but could feed others across from them. I'm 80 years old, had 12 years of Catholic education, listened to a lot of sermons in my lifetime, but never heard about the Noel balls. I see there are lots of versions, especially the one with the long spoons, but yours is a little more intellectual. Thank you for your work and keep it up. 
Yeah, I wish I could claim credit for it, but uh, uh, my dad had the creativity to put that uh, little spin on the uh, on uh, the, the good proverb, uh, the good story. So he, he was the one that uh, uh, was trying to, I think, convey the message that not only did suffering have meaning in, charitable, in charity and love, uh, but uh, all these other people who are basically blaming God instead of looking across the table to see what they could do for somebody else, uh, pretty much summarizes right. where we are today. You got a bunch of people who go, well, God can't be all powerful. Right. So they're denying the power of God. Some people say God can't be all loving. And of course, uh, some people say there can't be a God, you know, so you get some Nietzscheans in there. Mm -hmm. So, it, uh, uh, you know, my dad's trying right. to give you a complete explanation for everything. But anyway, I uh, wish I could take credit. Yeah, absolutely. My mother would be very happy about people without any elbows. She wasn't thrilled about mine on the table most of the time. So uh, <laughs> yeah. let's see. One last question before we get to Dear Father Spitzer. I feel in our pro-life fight, we stress too much the religious side of the argument. Would we not convert more people by just presenting scientific facts as to when biologists say life begins? It seems so many people receive a poor education, they still believe it is just a blob of tissue. Joanne, and that's exactly what you've been talking about really for the last two weeks, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I think you really do have to stick with the science when you're in the public square. I mean, when you're among Christians, of course you can use a religious argument, and it will have more effect because all of us acknowledge that Holy Scripture is, uh, you know, the divinely inspired Word of God. So if we believe that, we can use a religious argument. But in the public square, you cannot depend on that. It's much, you're absolutely right, it's much better to depend on the scientific facts of, you know, that, uh, you know, science has established through DNA sequencing, current studies of the human, the uniqueness of the human zygote. You put those things together, you know, 96% of international um, professional biologists wind up saying, okay, uh, the, the human life begins at fertilization. We see that now. We don't have any questions about that. Establish that fact and then go to the natural law argument. In other words, it's real easy to do because if you have a unique human being there that science has established, all you have to do is move to the next step. Well, if it's a unique human being, then it has the inalienable right to life and liberty according to the prescripts of natural equity and natural justice. You don't need any uh, revealed truth. You don't need an appeal uh, to religion at, at this point, or what Thomas Aquinas would call, right, you know, the, the, the revealed law. And so you can just use the natural law. And then, um, you know, once you have established that, that uh, um, unique human being has inalienable rights to life, then, of course, in our United States, you can say, well, if he has inalienable rights to, to life, that is a citizen of our country because that citizen, right, he was conceived in this country and he hasn't done anything wrong to revoke his civil rights. So he's not only a citizen, but he has the civil rights of a citizen, which means that he is deserving of protection under the law, or she is deserving of protection under the law. And if that is the case, then we have to, we have absolutely, we need to have the correction. I mean, the Supreme Court had no other choice. They literally 
knew that the scientific argument that was the basis of Roe v. Wade, where everybody was totally unsure, the whole scientific landscape has changed. They knew it, and they knew because there was, uh, you know, this change in the scientific landscape, they could no longer justify at all the Roe v. Wade argument that a human person was not present, or there was ambiguity as to whether a human person was present. And if you can't challenge that, then what we're talking about is abortion is the killing of an innocent human being. You know, the, you know, the only one who's not honest in all of this stuff are the legislators who are just overlooking all of these facts. They overlook the scientific argument. They overlook the, uh, uh, the, the natural law argument on the basis of equity and justice. And, and, and of course, um, they, say, they frame it as this issue is all about a woman's right to choose. Uh, uh, okay, it is. But it's not solely about a woman's right to choose. It's also about the more fundamental and alienable rights of the pre-born human being established by science to live, to have life uh, because he was conceived in this country and is deserving of protection under the law. He is innocent. He's done nothing wrong or she's done nothing wrong to warrant death. So the idea then is, yes, you can make that argument and you can make it soundly. The court was right. We should defend the court. We shouldn't be apologizing for anything. <laughs> Finally, we've got justice and equity in this country that we've been just running roughshod over all these years. We've known the science, you know, uh, 10 years back, wow. 20 years back. Uh, you know, the DNA sequencing studies were already showing us, you know, and, and already, you know, several uh, scientists were testifying before uh, the, the, uh, the, the courts that this was uh, actually the case. But, right. you know, people, it wasn't convenient. Politically right, exactly. Well, that's yeah. exactly so, what it is. Yeah. Let's not let the facts get in the way of what we want to do here, yeah. as my old <laughs> boss used to say. In, on page yeah. 237 in your book, how the, in, uh, talking about how the devil works, you talk about uh, the believer's best defense is the practice, habitual use of his three divine gifts. You say faith, empathy, and conscience. You go on to say he'll be assisted by using his power of empathy. I was interested, what is the power of empathy well, empathy means that, right, you see another human being, and it's very normal for us to make a connection. In other words, we recognize, even if we see another human being uh, who might be sick or another human being that might be in a real destitute state of life, there is something in human beings that sort of say there is something of intrinsic dignity here, something that is uniquely good and lovable here in this human being. There's a natural almost, you don't even have to think about it. The eyes are the windows to the soul. You look at that other human being and there is like a sympathetic vibration, a sympathetic or empathetic uh, reaction, a same feeling, a one feelingness between you and that other person. Uh, you just catch it uh, in the glimpse. You know, as you look into those eyes, you know that there's something there of love, that there's something there of goodness, that there's something there of God, of transcendence, of spirituality. It's all communicated in the eye. Every time we make eye-to-eye -eye contact, 
We are recognizing this in human beings, which is why oftentimes human beings, even the ones that are irritating us, and even the ones that are kind of busting our chops, we still have this sense that there's something uniquely good, lovable, worthy, transcendent in this other person. We feel it, as Edith Stein, the great, you know, Sister Teresa Benedicta of the Christ, she became a cardinal, would say, we can feel this um, empathy, this one feeling, uh, this sympathetic vibration uh, with the other. And so, in, in, in a manner of speaking, then, um, you know, this is very powerful because you don't want to hurt a person who you actually feel their worth. You actually feel their transcendent power. You actually feel their goodness right through the eyes, which are the windows to their soul. And, and so uh, I think it's a very, very powerful thing. Like I said, I meet human beings, and you know how hard it is to really try and destroy somebody when you see them face to face. Right, right. It's easy to send the email go ahead and do it in person when you really make that eye-to-eye -eye contact. And I think this is what's you so think that's destructive. Why, is that why people are so nasty online and things like that? Because they can get away with it? Because they don't have yeah. that connection? Yeah, they don't have the connection. They don't have that, you know, empathos, right? That one feeling with the, uh, with the other person. And, uh, and now, like I said, uh, Edith Stein is so good. Mm -hmm. She has an essay called On Empathy. Um, uh, you, as you know, she became a Carmelite Saint Teresa Benedicta of the Cross. Right. But if you take a look at that essay on empathy, it's really worth a read. It might even be available online uh, right now, and you know, one of those uh, various services that have, uh, you know, books that have, um, right. you know, where the uh, the copyright is is already uh, finished. She could have used a little more empathy from the guards at the death camp she ended up. Yeah. Well, of course, she could have gotten out of Holland, um, but um, the un Dutch underground mm. couldn't get her sister out, and she just said, I, I don't want to leave my sister uh, and, you know, get out uh, by myself. So she went uh, willingly to, with her sister to Auschwitz, and, of course, both of them uh, lost their lives horribly there. Right. Now, in the book, on page 237, How the Evil One Works Within the Culture to Promote Large-Scale Temptation, you list several, four different ways. Keep, and we talked a lot about keep increasing the intensity of social, digital stimulation that's going on constantly. The other one, you, the next up you say is keep undermining the truth and the goodness of God. Is it that there is no truth anymore at all? Oh, that's the best way to do it. Uh, if you can just undermine... Uh, the objectivity of truth and undermine the objectivity of good and evil. Once you do that, I mean, you know, practically as a devil, you're you're home free. I mean, this is one of the principles of Wormwood uh, in uh, mm. C.S. Lewis's Screw Tape Letters, because uh, once you get somebody into complete relativism, uh, they have no shield. They they have no way of of getting behind a shield. Right? They believe anything. Well, you know, it's. You know, it's just, you know, occasionally it's okay to have another sexual partner besides your wife. I mean, after all, you can sort of see that there's some benefits here, and, you know, and so forth and so on. I mean, the rationalizations, if you don't have an objective sense of goodness or evil, it's so easy to rationalize anything. The Spitzerian 
principle of infinite rationalization. Give me five minutes and anything which is convenient for me that I want, I can have rationalized as moral. If it weren't for that dratted objectivity of my conscience dictating, if it weren't for that dratted objectivity of religious writ that is telling me, you know, this is evil. If it weren't for that dratted objectivity, and of course I'm saying dratted, uh, you know, it, with, with big, huge, you know, scare quotes there, right. because uh, uh, for the obvious reason that it's not dratted. It's our salvation. God speaking through our conscience. God is speaking through these traditions, uh, you know, that, that have these moral uh, codes that go back, you know, to the time of, you know, beyond, before the Code of Hammurabi, you know, to Enuma Elish, to, you know, to, you know, all these kinds of religious uh, and, and uh, moral codes uh, and legal codes that are so important to the determination of the future of civilization. Yeah, so, you know, conscience, religion, you know, the tradition, uh, these are the, the things that we have to very much, uh, you know, consider and observe. Otherwise, we have no shield. And, and, and the same thing, you know, Plato and Aristotle were fighting this battle against the, 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 the sophists, you know, 2,400 years ago. I mean, this is way before the time of Christ. You know, you know there's Socrates and Plato out there uh, fighting with these sophists who are saying, ah, everything's relative. And, you know, the one who makes the most persuasive argument wins. And, and uh, you know, basically Plato would be saying, oh, well, uh, you, you know, you can either live to be right or you can live uh, to, to, to be, you know, to do the good and the truth, uh, truthful on the objective level. Mm -hmm. But, you know, basically one way or another, if all you want to do is be right, but you don't care about the truth and the objectivity of goodness or evil, then at the end of the day, you will be a destructive force to the world. And if you um, uh, uh, want to, you know, concern yourself with what is true and good and, and what is evil, then you're probably going to be a very constructive force uh, for the world. And uh, we know, you know, how the breakdown is there. The, the, the evil spirit, he's in control of, uh, you know, destructive forces in the world. And uh, the good right. Holy Spirit is in, you know, for the constructive forces in the world. And so, uh, yes, the devil has everything to gain and nothing to lose by undermining the objectivity of truth and goodness and, and um, you know, and evil. And, and uh, there are very good arguments, rational arguments that can be made for the objectivity of truth, goodness, and evil. Mm -hmm. And I've made many of them to my classes, and sometimes I do humorous ones. But the point that, that is very clear is once that objectivity is gone, subjectivity takes its place, anything is rationalizable mm -hmm. at that point. The, you know, we get to the Nietzschean state right. of beyond good and evil mm -hmm. and so-called beyond truth. Again, the scare quotes are very much present. Right, absolutely. Now, number three, you talk about keep marginalizing and ridiculing churches, religious people, religious commitment, and obviously we've talked about that. Number four, you talk about foster resentment of all moral and religious teachers who warn against reducing ourselves to mere material, sensual, uh, ego, comparative gratification. And that, that, there, yeah. that you definitely see this demonization of anybody who's trying to stand up for the truth. Oh, absolutely. And, but, you know, the whole thing about resentment, I, I often thought that, you know, 
maybe Jesus had chastised Judas or something like that. You know, because I, I couldn't figure out why would he betray Jesus, betray him with a kiss, pretend to be his friend, and then turn right around for 30 silver pieces, knife him in the back, knife this guy in the back who clearly had this miraculous power, who clearly had the sign of God all over the place with him, who clearly had a message of love and goodness that, that, that you know, responsible love and goodness that he was trying to bring to the world. Why? Why would he do this? And I often thought it's almost like, you know, maybe Jesus said something to him once like, uh, hey, Judas, you know, uh, you know, what you're doing here is swiping the money or, hey, Judas, what you're doing here, you know, consorting, you know, uh, uh, with, uh, you know, these zealots and so forth. Maybe that's not the right thing to do. Uh, and, and maybe, you know, Jesus was, hey, who are you to tell me? You know, I'm in charge here. You know, I'm in charge of myself. And, and uh, you know, how people can just, the resentment can get so out mm -hmm. of hand. And, you know, old Saul there, you know, Saul has killed his thousands and David is tens of thousands. That's it. Right. You gotta right. die, David. You know, I mean, the, but resentment, I think, is such a powerful, powerful tool of the devil, where you can just, you know, anything that anybody says, the devil is out there at the ear, mm -hmm. just saying, you know, um, uh, this guy has to die. You have rights, and he's by, you know, trying to take the moral high road on you. Mm -hmm even if you weren't trying to get the moral high road, even if you were trying to tell him for his own sake, you're doing things that are destructive to yourself, destructive to the people around you, destructive to the culture. Don't do this. You're not only going to be super unhappy, you're mm -hmm. jeopardizing your salvation. You're literally jeopardizing the legacy that you have to give to the world. You're just blowing it all up. Don't do this to yourself. You're telling them for their own good, and they think that bum Spitzer, he's saying this because he wants the moral high ground, and he wants to be right, and I resent him for it. And so once the resentment starts, it's so easy to just blow the air in there and stoke the flames, mm -hmm. and the evil spirit is an expert. And, of course, he replays the scenario for you, puts these little imaginary scenarios into your brain so that you retell the story so that you are, you know, put into a more offended position than right. you were previously. And with each retell retelling of, the, right. as it were, right. the myth, you know, you come out more and more the victim and more and more I got to come out and do some hitting and do some fighting back and, you know, put some, the knife in the back of the people who loved me most, you know. Right, and, right exactly. And uh, believe me, parents can, I mean, uh, kids can do this to their parents, you know, to the ones who love them most uh, without any um, uh, cause other than the parent, you know, said, for your own good, stop doing this. Right, exactly. You know, and, the, you know, it's like... It just blows up. And I think that's yeah. the devil's who you, famous Who are you to tool. tell me, right? Who are you to tell yeah. me? Who are you to tell me? But not only that is, mm -hmm. you told me. Mm -hmm. And now I'm going to punch back. I'm going to pay you back. I'm going to make you, you know, the victim of my superiority. 
And well, that's where the well, violence if I'm not comes responsible out. for anything, how dare you accuse me of something? So anyway, yeah. oh, well, with that, that too. With that being said, <laughs> we've got to ask you to give us uh, your blessing oh. on the way out the door. Uh, uh, very good. All right. Well, bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may Almighty God bless you and send his spirit down upon you to help you at this time to defend the goodness of, and, and the truth that is in our culture, the objectivity of truth and goodness itself, and to apply these fundamental principles to the issues of life and the issues of protecting of the innocent. And may he give you great courage and skill and wisdom and fortitude in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. We shall see you next week. And don't forget about all the Father Spitzer's books and videos available through our EWTN Religious Catalog. Next week, we'll see how Satan works within the culture to promote temptation, as we've discussed. We've also got a bookmark interview I did on Purgatory is for Real, Good News about the Afterlife for Those Who Aren't Perfect Yet by Carlo Broussard of Catholic Answers fame. And also, we've got a Mass on the Solemnity of Our Lady of Walsingham from our own Walsingham, England location where we have our own office Saturday, September 24th at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time. And Father Spitzer, he'll be there Saturday, October 1st, EWTN Family Celebration in Phoenix. Go to EWTN.com for more information on how you can attend this wonderful free event. And I'm Doug Keck. This has been Father Spitzer's Universe. We shall see you next time. Thanks.